going on on this Sunday. This is our ordinance Sunday. So glad to have you all with us. We're going to start our service this morning by singing uh, one of our favorite hymns, Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone. So let's all go ahead and stand together. Shake off the sleepies. Good morning. And let's sing together Amazing Grace.
be seated. Today's service is devoted to the observance of the Lord's table, communion, and since it's not a weekly observance, I always take a little time to explain, and I want to ensure that everyone understands what communion is, who can participate, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Communion is a ceremony. It's a rite that we observe in obedience to what Christ has commanded. It does not serve in any way to get you to heaven. In fact, as we'll see, we participate not in order to go to heaven, but because we are going to heaven. And we do not take part as a means to get there. Communion is a memorial. It's a symbol that reminds us of the work of Jesus Christ. So who should participate? It is for those who have trusted Christ as Savior. Now, if you don't know what that means, I'd love to explain it to you at a time of your convenience. So see me afterward or contact me this week, and we'll set a time to get together. And in the meantime, we're delighted that you're here as our guest. We encourage you to observe what it is we do today. For those who have trusted Christ as Savior, the Bible gives one other requirement, and that is that we confess sin before we partake of the Lord's table. Now, in a bit, we are going to take time to go to the Lord and confess our sin. Now, what might that sin be? Well, it may be that we have some sin that we refuse to give up or something that the Lord has told us in His Word that we're to do but we're unwilling to obey. In either case, we should take that to the Lord, confess it, and He promises to forgive and then act according to His directives. One matter that's too often overlooked as it relates to our worship on any Lord's Day, not just on Ordinance Sunday or communion, and that's the matter of unresolved interpersonal conflict. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them then come and offer your gift. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, it tells us that we are to seek peace and make peace as much as it is possible, as much as it depends on you. You obviously can't make peace with someone who's unwilling, but you need to be willing to make the attempt. And so he's saying here that if there's an issue between us and a brother or sister, we should take care of that before we participate in worship, including communion. Now, if you're aware of Jesus' instructions and you have a conflict that you're just refusing to pursue, then I'd encourage you not to participate according to Jesus' instructions and take care of that issue today. If you've tried to reconcile, as I say, but the other party refuses, you're released from any biblical obligation. Or perhaps Jesus' command is new to you, and if that's the case, take the matter to the Lord when we pray, ask for His wisdom, participate in communion, but then address that with the individual this week, even this afternoon, because it's that important to God according to Jesus. And by the way, that includes people in our homes, that includes spouses, that includes parents and children. And another matter about which the Lord has commanded us is the issue of baptism. The Bible is clear that those who know Christ as Savior are to follow Him in obedience and baptism that is being immersed in water to symbolize His death, His burial, and His resurrection. This evening at 5 o'clock, four individuals are going to do that very thing, and we invite you all to be with us as we celebrate that spiritual milestone for them. 
Now, if you're just struggling with what baptism is or you haven't had occasion to look into it, then if you have trusted Christ as Savior, we invite you to participate in communion today, but you need to make it a point to see me about baptism and to be baptized at our next opportunity later this year. If you have looked into it, you're just refusing, that's a sin that needs to be confessed, but you can do that this morning and then we'll follow up, follow up by getting with me, we go from there. What about children? Should children participate? Well, the requirements are the same for our children. They need to know Christ as Savior, they need to be willing to be baptized, and there is no prescribed age for children and when they should participate, so we leave it to parents to make that decision. So who should participate? Those who know Christ as Savior and who have confessed known sin in their lives. So we are going to pray now. Perhaps take this opportunity to confess any known sin to the Lord. Let's bow together. God the Father, we thank you for sending God the Son, Jesus, to die for our sin. Because of his offering of himself for us, we delight to offer ourselves to you in gratitude. We thank you for allowing us the privilege of being your children and being able to set aside this time to remember Christ's sacrifice for us. Lord, we readily confess that we are sinners in general, and each of us struggles with certain sins in particular. We pray now that you will be pleased as we remember with profoundly thankful hearts the death of Jesus on our behalf, and that we'll be motivated to recommit our lives to the service of the one who alone is worthy. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before we get into then our service proper, we are going to give to the Lord through the act of the worship of, of our offering. So if the guys will come forward, and this is on Ordinance Sunday, communion, the first of two offerings. Normally, the rest of the weeks throughout the year, we pass the hat one time, but uh, we do it twice on Communion Sunday. This is our regular offering that we do every week, and those who are members of our church uh, participate in. Those of you who are guests should not feel obligated to give. Just pass the basket to the person next to you. That second offering at the end of today's service is what we call our benevolence offering. The proceeds of that go to a fund, a benevolence fund that is overseen by our deacons to be able to help as needs come up within the body. And we have this one this, uh, this time designated for one of our missionaries. They have a benevolence need. We told you about that uh, two weeks ago at our family meeting. So we're trying to raise $5,000 to give to the Carlisles. I'll mention that again at the end when we collect that offering. May the Lord bless you as you give.
I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. You'll need a Bible to follow along. So these brothers have some. They're coming to the front, and they're going to make their way toward the back. So if you need a Bible, as they do that, just get their attention. They'll give you one of those Bibles. I say give on purpose. It is a gift. So keep it. It's yours. Bring it back every week. It's marked for you as well at the passage we're going to consider for our communion service, John chapter 6. Now, a key to understanding the structure of the book of John is to see the use that John makes of what he calls signs. He specially uses the word sign to refer to actions that Jesus performed that were designed to point to who Jesus is. After performing these signs, Jesus would then teach on the significance, the significance as that pointer to who he is. And these are given in the first 11 chapters, and then the last half of the book is devoted to the last few days of Jesus' life, the events surrounding his death and his resurrection. Now, in John chapter 6, we have one of those signs in the feeding of the 5,000. Many of you remember the story of Jesus using a boy's lunch of five small loaves and two small fish and multiplying those to not only feed the crowd, but have baskets full of food left over. Now, with that in mind, please look at verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So seeing this miraculous sign, the people recalled Moses' prediction 1,500 years before in the first part of your Bible that a prophet like him, like Moses, would arise. Here's what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And, in fact, Moses had fed the people in the wilderness, you remember, and Moses had led them out of bondage. And now Jesus has fed the people, so Jesus could as well lead the people out of the hated Roman bondage. Not only that, but they may well have thought about what a great government welfare program that this guy could have for them. So they wanted him to be their king and to remove them from Roman bondage, but it was not time for Jesus to be king, as there would be no king before the cross. And so Jesus withdrew from them. The next several verses talk about how the people pursued him, and then down in verse 25, if you'll look, it says this, verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now Jesus ignores their, their question, and instead he sought to show them that he could offer them much more than a free meal, that he could, in fact, offer eternal life. Verse 26, Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. That is, you're not appreciating the larger, again, significance, significance of what you saw and experienced. You're focused on the meal, but the sign I just gave you points to more than that. 
So verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now this crowd was made up mostly of people who performed a day's work for just a day's food, living hand to mouth. But Jesus is pointing them to food that's more important and more lasting, even everlasting, eternal. And he's saying he can offer it. And he can offer it because of who he is. When Jesus says in verse 27 that he is the Son of Man, he's employing the title that he most commonly used for himself. He uses it 81 times in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it's never used to refer to anyone but Jesus. That title, Son of Man, goes again back to the first part of your Bible and to the book of Daniel. And God gave Daniel a look at the end and what the coming one would, would do. And I've asked Brother Glenn Crock to read for us. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. All of that regarding the future and the future king and his kingdom is said of one who Daniel refers to as the Son of Man, and Jesus now is using that title for himself. He is the future king, but he will be that because he's already the Messiah, the chosen one, in the words of verse 27, the one on whom, quote, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And we see this, that the, the Messiah and the Son of Man are one and the same in Mark chapter 8, where the Bible tells us, Mark chapter 8 and verse 29, Peter said to Jesus, you are the Messiah. And then it goes on to say that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So Peter says you're the Messiah, and Jesus uses the title Son of Man in juxtaposition to that, that indeed he is the Messiah and the Son of Man. And by referring to himself as the Son of Man, he is saying that he is the promised one, the Messiah, to use the Old Testament word, the Christ, to use the New Testament word. Jesus is the Christ. And so he can offer eternal life because of who he is, together with what he has done. Jesus can give the food because he is the food that provides eternal life. Look down in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Let's stand now and sing of the fact that it's in Christ alone that we trust.
Jesus offers eternal life, but He requires that we believe. Again, verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him God the Father has placed His seal of approval. Then verse 28, then they asked Him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one He has sent. Jesus is able to offer because of who He is and what He has done, and what it is then we are to believe are those same two things. We are to believe who He is. Please look at verse 32. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. So Moses was not the one who gave the manna from heaven, but the God who gave that was different and better bread. Now with Jesus, the God who has sent Jesus is giving a different and better bread, true bread, that he says gives life to the world. They still don't see that he's talking about something beyond regular bread, and so they say, we can live with that deal free bread all the time. And so verse 31, they say, always give us this bread. And then Jesus makes a very direct and astonishing claim in verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, when he says there, I am the bread of life, this is the first of several times now in this book that Jesus will say of himself, I am. I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, I am the way. Chapter 15, I am the vine. And this goes back, again, 1,500 years to the time of Moses, when God called Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. I've asked Brother Daniel Pruitt to read for us from Exodus chapter 3. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So tell them, I am has sent you. And this phrase, I am, is related in Hebrew to the personal name of God given in the Bible, Yahweh, the self-existing one. Not I became, not I will be, but always and eternally, I am. And Jesus is applying this to himself in the book of John. And notice the reaction to this in verse 41. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven. 
Look, they're saying, this is a man, a man of flesh and bone, a human being. How can he say that he came from heaven? As one scholar has said, why is it so hard for these people to believe on Jesus? According to their statement, the problem lay in Jesus' human relatedness. His mother and supposed father were well known. This crowd knew where babies came from, and it wasn't from heaven. From their point of view, Jesus was just another man, just an ordinary guy. Given their assumptions, Jesus' claims were simply too extravagant to be considered. Yes, Jesus' spiritual claims seem extravagant when viewed through the humble origins of His humanity, His incarnation, that is, His enfleshment when He came 2,000 years ago, is the main obstacle to belief in those spiritual claims. He was a tangible, palpable man of flesh who was born in a manger. Who then could believe that He could be the one who came down from heaven? And this was a rather common problem in the first century that had to be confronted in a number of places in your New Testament, and that is the denial that God could come in the flesh, that God could add humanity to His deity. And that was owing for many to the influence of Greek philosophy, Platonism, the idea that the body is evil. In fact, Plato called it the prison house of the soul. So how could God take on a body? Many taught the body was evil, and so it would be impossible. But the same author, John, of the Gospel of John, wrote another New Testament book. In fact, he wrote four others. One of those is 1 John. And I've asked Brother Rob Hyden to read for, from 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into this world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Notice... It's every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is from God. And so we must believe who Jesus is, the promised one who has come to us from heaven. It is to there that He has now returned and from there that He will come again. We must believe who He is and we must believe what it is that He has done. Verse 47. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, throughout this teaching, of Jesus in John chapter 6, eating is used as a metaphor for believing. We believe who He is and what He has done, and we are given eternal life. And all of the signs that are recorded in the Gospel of John are for that purpose, that we would believe who He is and believe what He has done for us. So that by the time you come to the end of the book, after Jesus has performed these signs to point to who He is, and then done greater work by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, toward the end of the book, here's what we're told. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence 
of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Our next song says, Complete in thee, no work of mine could take, dear Lord, the place of thine. Let's stand together and sing. Jesus offers eternal life. He requires that we believe. And so, thankfully, He overcomes unbelief. When we see 
people in the Bible, we should look for traits that those people share with us. It's very easy for us to look at folks portrayed in the Bible and kind of shake our heads in disapproval and think to ourselves, what is wrong with them? But what is wrong with them is what is wrong with us. Namely, we are separated from God, and that separation is because of our sin. At least that's the way we come into the world. The Bible teaches that we are unbelievers naturally, by nature. And you see that it's deeply seated in this crowd, as it is in us unless and until God removes it. Here Jesus had performed the sign of feeding the 5,000, and He begins to teach them that He is the bread of eternal life, and this is their reaction and ours outside of Christ in verse 29. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one He has sent. So they asked Him, verse 30, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Jesus has just fed. He has just given them the sign. He has just fed the the 5,000. And they are rejecting. That's what's happening in verse 30. Well, we need something else. They're rejecting the sign that is designed to point to who Jesus is. They're rejecting the sign of Jesus' Messiahship. That's a clear indication then of their unbelief. They don't see any reason to believe in Him, but they do feel quite good about themselves because when He told them, work for food that endures to eternal life in verse 27, they think they're up to the task in verse 28. What must we do to do the works that God requires? They're saying, in effect, we've got this. Just tell us what it is we need to do. They have the mistaken notion that everyone has that they have it within their power to do what's necessary for a relationship with God. And yet the more that Jesus teaches about the need to believe who He is and what He does, they find it's not so easy after all. And Jesus, Jesus tells them why it's not so easy. Verse 35, Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in Me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. So you have seen me, you have seen the signs that point to who I am as the Messiah, and yet you still do not believe. And the Bible tells us how entrenched that rebellion against God is in every single human heart in places like Ephesians chapter 2, and I've asked Brother Gordon Castelnero to read for us. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath." This is who we are, who every person is by nature, the Bible says. That was their situation. The people 
that Jesus showed this sign and to whom he was teaching the significance. It was their situation. It's our situation. We are natural-born sinners who therefore do not believe who Jesus is and what he has done. So on the one hand, we've seen that Jesus offers eternal life, but in order to have that eternal life, you must believe who he is and what he's done, but we don't naturally do that. None of us does. So what do we do? No better, what does God do in order to get us out of this dilemma? Verse 37, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. The reason, Jesus is saying, the reason you don't believe, even though I've shown you the sign, is because that's your, yes, your natural disposition, and because apparently the Father has not moved upon you. Because all that the Father gives to me will come to me, unlike you all. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. In fact, in verse 44, it says we do not have the natural ability to come to God. We don't have the natural ability. Look at verse 44. No one does come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. Now, notice I changed the word on purpose just to make sure you're awake and you're reading. It doesn't say no one does come to me. It says, do you notice what it says there? No one can come to me. No one can. No one has the ability. No person, no sinful human being comes into this world with the ability themselves to come to God. No one can unless the Father does something. And so, if we're to become believers, it will require that God does the work on us, but thankfully, He does. We are unbelievers naturally, but if you're a believer today, it's because God did a supernatural work on you. We are believers supernaturally. Ephesians chapter 2 that Brother Gordon just read that tells us that we are all by nature sinners and objects of wrath, that's what our destination would all be and rightly and justly be if God does not intervene. But that same chapter, following right on what Gordon read, tells us that God does intervene. I've asked Brother Joe Coppola to read for us. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, 
It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So notice the flow from Ephesians chapter 2. What Gordon read earlier is that we are dead in our transgressions. We are dead in sin. Jesus says in John chapter 6 and verse 44, you don't have the ability. No one can. You're dead spiritually. But then verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2 says, but God. One of the great contrasts in the Word of God, but God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive while you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And then Paul adds, it is by grace you have been saved. It is the grace of God, the undeserved grace of God, that he breathes spiritual life into the spiritually dead. He does what we cannot do. Now, the past two Sundays, our passages have touched on this idea that God must choose before we can choose. Last Sunday, we saw that in Acts chapter 13 and verse 48. That says, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now, thinking through all of that, And all of its implications is startling the first few times you read it in Scripture. And if you read through Scripture, you will read it a number of times. And it is just in God's providence that these two weeks we have had these two passages back to back. But it is found in many places. And you understandably might ask, well, why does God not do that with everyone? Why does does God not do this work that's necessary because we can't, and yet God requires that we, in fact, believe? Why doesn't He do this, and is it fair for God not to do this on everyone? How can God hold me responsible for believing when I can't believe? What we need to remember is what I alluded to last week. We need to start where the Bible starts, at the very beginning. You see, God told us to believe Him in the garden. And we all said, no, we don't believe. No, I'm not going to follow you. The reason we all come into the world as we are is because we all chose to rebel against God in Adam. That's what the Bible teaches. So it's not as though we come into the world and there are people out there who would love to follow Jesus if He would just let them. The Bible teaches there is no one who does good, not even one. The Bible teaches there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no such person out there who's groping for Jesus. There will be no relationship between God and any human being. Hear this, not if the person searches for God because we don't seek God, Romans 3 says. But rather, thanks be to God, He seeks us. I once was lost, but now I'm what? Found by God. So why doesn't God do that with everyone? Here's what I would recommend that you do, friends. I would recommend you ask this more personally. Ask yourself, ponder all day today, ponder this week, ponder for the rest of your life, why did God save me? 
Not why doesn't he save somebody else. Why did God save me? Look at you. Look at me. Look at what wretches we are. That is what John Newton said in that song that we all is beloved, right? Why did God save me? And God wants the answer to that to be focused on him and what he did for you and in you. And that's how he gets all the glory, and you get none. And I get none. And God wants it that way. And what Brother Joe read, the very end it is, so that no one can, remember? Boast. Now, there's a whole lot to that. I can't do all of it right now. But I anticipate you might have some questions. And so we purchased some additional copies of Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. We have those in our resource center. And if you have questions, he does an excellent job of answering those. And then, of course, I'm available to do that as well. For now, though, contemplate the truth in this next song that says, if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. And so sing with joy the title of this song, All I Have is Christ, and praise God, all I need is Christ. Let's stand together.
So Jesus offers eternal life. He requires that we believe. He overcomes unbelief. And finally, He gives us fellowship with God. Look at verse 53. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. One commentator has said, rather than abandoning the metaphor of eating, Jesus intensifies it now. And rather than using the generic term translated eat earlier, he now switches to a different word which meant in the first century to be a companion to the one whose bread was shared. So now when he talks about eating and feeding in the verses that I just read, verses 53 to 58, the word behind eating and feeding is this word for sharing companionship, fellowship with the one whose bread you share. And it's the exact same expression used in just this way just a few chapters in John chapter 13. 
And you may remember that John chapter 13 is the institution of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. It designates then companion and fellowship. Since Jesus had already said that His body was the bread that He would give for the life of the world, now then the application is clear. The body that Jesus gave for us on the cross is the basis of our fellowship with Him. There is no companionship or fellowship with Christ apart from His body. We cannot believe in Christ while rejecting His true humanity and His death on the cross for us. But for those of us who have eaten, that is, we believe in who Jesus is and in what Jesus has done, we now are invited to remember Him in the symbol of the Lord's table. The Bible tells us that on the night He was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Brother Mark Hunter is going to lead us in our prayer, thanking the Lord for His broken body on our behalf. Heavenly Father, we're gathered this morning before you to worship you in spirit and in truth. For there is no God like you. Your holiness is unequaled. Your goodness is unmatched. And you are perfect in all your ways. But we have sinned against you and fallen short of your glory. We acknowledge that we can't stand before you in our own righteousness because we are morally corrupt. But you've demonstrated your righteousness by presenting Christ as a sacrifice to satisfy your wrath. It was your will to send your son to live a perfect life and then to die so that we could be pardoned from the guilt and penalty of sin and have Christ's righteousness credited to our account. So our actions this morning are in obedience to your word to proclaim the death of Christ until he comes. Help us now to think about how we've conducted ourselves and if we're reflecting the character of our Lord who we represent. Bring to mind any relationships that are not right within your body, and if necessary, help us to make them right today. Thank you that we can be united with our fellow brothers and sisters as we participate in the Lord's Supper, and that we can receive the benefits of his death. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.
This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Brother John Roberts is going to lead us in our prayer, thanking the Lord for his shed blood on our behalf. Our dear Lord, as we humbly come before you today and we take this cup representing your blood poured out on the cross, we realize that you are the supreme sacrifice for all our sins, past, present, and future. And because your blood shed for us, we can be free from the power and penalty of sin. Lord, we thank you for your victory over death for you took death that we deserved. You took our punishment. Your pain was indeed our gain. And today remember, we remember and we celebrate this precious gift of life that you've given to us. May we never forget the enormous price that was paid on our behalf. May we never forget that we have been brought, bought with a price, the precious blood of our Lord Jesus. And may we live for him every day of our lives. Amen.
do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We have two more songs and we have some housekeeping items in between. I could skip one of the songs for sake of time, but I get to pick the songs on Lord's Table Sunday, Ordinance Sunday, and so I like all of them. So I want to do these next two. Let's stand together as we sing.
please be seated momentarily. We will stand in just a moment. And we could have, that would have been a good spot to end uh, normally. But I'm not just doing it uh, because I like the last song as well, but because I mentioned that offering at the beginning, our benevolence offering. And we always do a second offering at the end of our communion services. The proceeds go into our benevolence fund. This one, though, the proceeds are going to go toward one of our missionaries, the Carlisles, who have moved back to the States from Cambodia. They are renovating a home in the Port Huron area from which they're going to carry out their new ministry, and they need some help with that. We would like to give them and are going to give them $5,000, so we're hoping that this will give us the bulk of that, but whatever you are able to give, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago at our family meeting. So guys, if you'll come forward, and we will receive that offering now, or you can give toward it online as, as well. And while the guys are passing those baskets, let me very quickly go through what's coming up, and then we will conclude with our final song. Today is the 10th of 12 Sundays that we've had through the summer with four uh, different, different classes. You see those on the screen. And if you haven't been a part of those, you want to stay uh, for any of those, then you can find out where they are and where they meet by asking at our Welcome Center desk that is out in the lobby. Tonight at 5 o'clock is our next baptism celebration. You do not need to sign up to attend this. And we have four folks that are being baptized. We would like uh, always to have as many from our church family here to encourage them in this step of faith as possible. And then, as you all know, we have a dinner afterwards uh, by way of celebration. So it's always a great time. I encourage you to attend tonight at uh, 5 o'clock. You have just uh, two weeks left to sign up to be a volunteer for our very large event in October. Every year we do Enchanted Trails. So if you can help with that, do that at our website. And there's a banner to, uh, for Enchanted Trails for you to register to be a volunteer. Uh, just two weeks left for that. Mark your calendars to get ready for our midweek program that's going to start back up on Wednesday, uh, September the 21st. We're going to have our Adult Community Institute. We'll have three classes for that. Those of you that have never taken How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, that's one of our foundational classes. That's the class for you. So that's one of the three. But those of you that have taken that, you can choose between taking a class on Matthew and a class on 1 Corinthians and so watch for more details and registration to open in the coming week for Community uh, Institute and our Pioneer Club. You can register for any of that. You can find out more about what's going on by the connection card. Send the keyword CBC Connect to 97000. All right. Thank you for your indulgence on all of that. Now we really will be dismissed with our final song. Let's stand together. We've done this uh, for all of our Ordinance Sundays to end our service. Man of Sorrows, just our voices this morning. Man of Sorrows, there's our starting note. Let's all sing together the five verses of Man of Sorrows. Man of Sorrows, what a name For the Son of God who came Ruined sinners to reclaim Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood, 
Not the very end of our services, though. We do have second hour starting in just a little while. We do need these two sections removed for our marriage series. So if you've got stuff here, you got to get it out. Um, and then we're going to change this up, put the tables here. In the meantime, we have Cafe Community, and that second hour begins at 11.15. If you're not in the marriage series, if you're here, it's 11 o'clock. We'll see you guys back then. <laughs>